Well, good evening, everyone. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along tonight, we are looking at 1 Kings chapter 12. And if you want an outline, there are some in the back to follow along. Uh, when Robert mentioned that about the Baptist writers, I, I'm also very familiar with that. And uh, I lived in the South for a couple of years, and boy, those are some really big issues uh, that he just mentioned. And I did not make that connection to the scripture reading, uh, but that is quite, uh, that's a good reminder uh, for all of us. I want to begin by talking briefly about the civil war that took place in our country uh, from 1861 to 1865. What was the cause of the American Civil War? Five years of national division, bloodshed, and destruction. Talk of leaving the Union was present as early as 1776. I had forgotten that when I was looking this up this past week. South Carolina, they were the first to threaten in 1776 that they would leave if the proposal to tax all people in the Union would pass. What's the reason for that? Why would they uh, oppose that? Because that meant that the slave owner had to pay the taxes on all of the slaves that he owned. And they didn't like that. They thought that was unfair. The Civil War, of course, had many causes, not just one. When Lincoln was elected in 1860, it made the South feel that their cause was for no purpose or unheeded. The Southern economy was largely uh, an economy of cotton, wasn't it? And that's a labor-intensive crop. And they would justify their need of slavery to pick those crops from year to year. In contrast, the northern part of the country, the economy was based more on industrial products. But the southerners said, you northerners are hypocrites because you buy cotton from us and you use it to produce products. And so, of course, there's all this, these divisions. But on December 20th of 1860, South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union. Over the course of the next year and a half until June of 1861, 10 other states would join the Confederacy against the Union in what we now know as a bloody civil war. Now, if you ever know someone from West Virginia, they were not a state until 1863, and I had forgotten this. The western part of Virginia sided basically with the north, and they eventually became West Virginia in 1868 because they had been loyal uh, to the Union. In 1 Kings 12, we begin a new section in this book, and it's a sad section because it's about a very difficult division that emerges in Israel. God's people are dividing into two separate nations that really don't have a lot of love for one another. In a very good book that I've enjoyed over the years, Kingdom of Priests by Merrill, Eugene Merrill, he summarizes a significant point uh, in this particular drama that's unfolding in King. And he says, The death of Solomon paved the way for one of the most decisive and traumatic events in Israel's long history. And that event was the formal and permanent division of the kingdom between the ten tribes of the north henceforth known as Israel or Ephraim, and the tribe of Judah in the south. He says, though shattering to the national psyche, this cleavage should, should have come as no surprise. That's a very important statement what he just wrote in his book. 
He says for thoughtful people that are engaged with the Old Testament, this should not surprise us that there is a division in Israel that takes place on this level. We sense that this has been coming for some time. He goes on to list several examples of deep tensions within Israel before the reading tonight, our study of 1 Kings chapter 12. Do you remember that about 80 years prior to this chapter, before 1 Kings 12, Israel already lived through a bitter civil war that lasted for seven years. That happened after King Saul died. But Merrill lists other examples of difficulties just within the boundaries and the geography of Israel that led to deep suspicion from brother to brother. Geographically, the Israelites were divided in different ways, weren't they? Some of the tribes, a few of them, lived on the other side of the Jordan. And the Jordan River became a boundary marker of division and mistrust towards one another. Some of the tribes far to the north allowed the natural boundaries of the mountains to isolate them from the rest of the nation, and they slowly grew apart at times. And ironically, Jerusalem, the place that God had chosen to place his name, uh, the temple there, the capital city, that too in some ways was the most isolated part of the nation. And that would have led other people, you know, taking advantage of these natural boundaries to become spiritual boundaries and to think that Judah is not part of the rest of us as a nation. I do think there were some real moments of unity in the reigns of King David and King Solomon, but we also must recognize there were also these persistent divisions that have been brewing for centuries. They've been festering and smoldering. The secession of Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12 is the immediate occasion for the national division, this difficult division that we study. And the two main human characters here uh, from the royal perspective are Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and Jeroboam. Now, there there are also prophets that are uh, almost behind the scenes, but as we mentioned earlier in our study when we began Kings, the role of prophecy becomes a very significant subject in the book of kings. It's, it's, it's at this point in history that we start to see the rise of the prophetic office, and that's not by accident. So we finished our study of 1 Kings 1 through 11, an overview of Solomon's reign. Now we come to the next block, 12 through 16, and we're entering new territory because these chapters introduce us to the division and the rise of idolatry within Israel. Solomon's death death left an enormous hole in Israel's leadership. And sadly, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, in his lack of wisdom, right, he has a propensity for evil and foolishness. He opens the door wide open for permanent division among the nation of God's people. Paul House lists four things that are helpful for us to keep in mind before we go to our first point about this tragic turn of events in Israel's history. Number one, the division of the nation will have a tremendous impact for the rest of the Old Testament, right? The rest of the book of Kings covers the end of the Old Testament. Two, the division of the nations of the nation Israel emboldens Israel's enemies. Three, Jeroboam, right? We'll look at him next time. His new religion makes living faithfully if you live in those other parts of the north very difficult, in the what he does. And then three, we see the prophetic movement begin to have far more importance as God sends prophets to hold the kings accountable. 
our first question or our first thought here is Rehoboam, right? He becomes king. And as we go into these questions, several commentators have pointed out that there is a strange parallel between what is happening in this chapter and what took place in Egypt in the days when the, when the Hebrews were enslaved. And one author pointed this out says, you know, we're about to see the tearing away of the kingdom that has been threatened in chapter 11. We looked at that last time. As Moses led his people out of slavery under the house of the Egyptian Pharaoh, so Jeroboam will lead Israel out from slavery under the house of David. That's extremely sad to even think about that. As God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to accomplish all his will, so the hardness of Rehoboam's heart that we see tonight will hasten this national division. The exodus took Israel towards a new promised land, but now they will soon be let off their path as the, quote, Jeroboam as Moses figure analogy becomes the Jeroboam as Aaron who fashions golden calves for the people uh, to worship. Eventually, the result for the northern kingdom will be eviction from their land and exile in another. Again, really sad Background, but that's also quite important for us to think about. So we read about the death of King Solomon at the end of last study in 1 Kings 11. And let's come to verse 1 and we ask this question, why did Rehoboam travel to Shechem? Now he's traveling here for the coronation apparently, but the capital is in Jerusalem. The first verse of 1 Kings 12 begins, Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. He reigns for 17 years. He's not a good king. And the strange thing here is, why is he being declared king in Shechem uh, and not in Jerusalem? I mean, perhaps he was proclaimed king in Jerusalem by the, the tribe of Judah, and then he had a second coronation here. But already there's a flashing red light that says, weakness, weakness. There's something going wrong in the nation. Why does he have to go there? Why did he feel compelled to go there. This is kind of a remarkable opening statement that we don't read about this taking place in Jerusalem, the place where God had chosen to place his name, the central place of worship for Israel. Again, there could have been some coronation in Jerusalem. We're not told about that. We're just told about this particular um, attempt to have a coronation in Shechem a city to the north, right, in the tribal territory of Ephraim. This was a, a famous city in Israel's history. In the days of Joshua, this was a place of covenant renewal. Joseph's bones are buried there. But it's also a place where some bad things happened, and I don't know which one the author is pointing to. Judges 9.6 reminds us that Abimelech was crowned king at Shechem. And is this kind of a foreshadowing of the disaster that is about to unfold in Israel? Did Rehoboam go there because he genuinely wanted to see the nation unified? Or was this just some type of political act, like I got to do it to finish my coronation? Was it just a formality? I'm not sure, but it's not a good sign as we begin this, this chapter of study tonight. It's not a sign of unity, is it? Our second question, why did Jeroboam make this request in verses 2 through 5? Remember, as our last chapter in chapter 11, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, so he fled to Egypt. And so he's been there. 
Verse 2 begins, and as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard of it, right, heard of what's going on now, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Again, what's going on in these verses when we we have now a spokesman for the non-Judah tribes, and he is Jeroboam, and we know that Jeroboam was a very capable leader. We learned that in chapter 11. Solomon initially liked him and promoted him, and he was rising in the ranks until Solomon, for whatever reason, was it jealousy? He tried to kill him. That's who Jeroboam is, and he was hiding in Egypt because he was finding safety from the son of David that was trying to do him harm. He is called out of exile at the time of the coronation, and before they will coronate or agree to announce his kingship, they have, uh, they, they've arranged to have a talk with, the, with Rehoboam, and they want Jeroboam to be the representative to carry their complaint before Rehoboam. That's why they're making this request. And again, we've already read some positive things about Jeroboam, but the most important thing we read in chapter 11 was the prophecy that the prophet spoke to him and said, I am going to tear the kingdom apart. God tells, the prophet tells Jeroboam that, and you're going to have 10 tribes. But I'll leave one tribe with the throne of David, because I made a promise to him, and I'm never going to revoke that promise. Again, Merrill says the coronation ceremony must have been a bit tenuous because suddenly it turned into a negotiating session. That's not supposed to happen at a coronation. So Jeroboam approached Rehoboam, and he spoke on behalf of the non-Judah tribes, And he is raising a complaint, and people have argued, well, maybe it's not even a legitimate complaint. Maybe this is a total overstatement after reading all of those positive things in Solomon's reign. I don't think we have to say that it was an overstatement. This could have been a real complaint. I mean, in those last years of Solomon's life, he was perhaps spending a lot of tax money building pagan shrines. And if you're a faithful Israelite, that's got to be really hard to stomach. And so Jeroboam initially appears in this text as a second Moses in this analogy of the Exodus. And of course, Rehoboam, he he is going to turn out to be one that acts just like Pharaoh, who is a tyrant. It's almost a repeat of the Exodus story now taking place within Israel. Jeroboam sets forth conditions Rehoboam had to meet if he expected their support. Solomon, they said, had dealt with him harshly with the tribes and unfairly. And Rehoboam must address the situation. He must promise to do better if they want their, if they, if he wants their support to be king. You could already start to think about how this might apply to you when you've been treated unfairly. I mean, what would you do? Don't exaggerate the unfairness as some people think that this could be taking place, right, when Jeroboam approaches Rehoboam. Just state the offense accurately. There's no need to exaggerate. 
one of the challenges here, and this goes back to a comment that was made in 1 Kings chapter 4 in verses 7 through 19, and it goes something like this. If Solomon made the decision to exempt the people of Judah from taxation and made everybody else pay, then of course you're going to have some discontentment, right? This is like taxation and no representation kind of a concept, but it's like the reverse of that, isn't it? And that may have been a terrible decision that Solomon had made because we believe that the longer Solomon reigned, the heavier the taxation, the heavier the taxation became. And if other foreign nations were not paying in their tribute to the coffers, that meant that the people of Israel had to pick up the tab. That would be a great point of unfairness and injustice, perhaps a legitimate point to bring to the son of Solomon who was about to be coronated. Now, if Solomon had done that, it appears to be a terrible blunder on his behalf. Why would he do that? His leadership was so strong in his lifetime, and God specifically said he wasn't going to judge the nation until Solomon died. You can understand that Solomon was simply keeping a lid on the cauldron that was about to boil over. This is a seething cauldron in Israel. There is discontentment among the people of God. So Jeroboam perhaps raised legitimate complaints that the people had with King Solomon's previous leadership policies. And they're, they're coming with Jeroboam's request saying, look, this is not addressed. This is not fair. And all we ask is that you address this and we will serve you. We will serve you throughout your reign. Another question we have that unfolds in verses 6 through 14, did Rehoboam respond wisely as a leader? Now, I think we all know that he does not respond wisely. There's really nothing that I could say. I thought I was, there was one thing that I could say positive about Rehoboam that I, I was going to put in my notes. And then I went back and I said, I can't find anything positive to say about Rehoboam here. And I was hoping to say one thing at the end about the last prophet that speaks to him. This is kind of a, an embarrassing and a discouraging part of Scripture. Dale Ralph Davis describes the, these whole set of verses before us, verses 6 through 14, as stupidity under the sovereignty of God. And, and he's describing Rehoboam and the counsel that he accepts from uh, the younger generation. Verse 6 begins, Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now where my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said. 
Come to, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. It is very clear that the older men were giving the correct counsel. They were giving wise counsel. And it's very clear that the younger men who had grown up with Rehoboam, he's like 41 years of age right now, they gave him foolish counsel. But the final decision rests squarely on the shoulders of Rehoboam, doesn't it? He is the king. He is a new king that, that has to make the decision. I'm, I'm not even sure when he, when he was coronated at this point. It's, it's, it's not clear in this passage. The wiser and older counselors basically told Rehoboam, concessions will conquer their complaints. In other words, listen to their plea that they are raising before you. Just respond positively to them and you will have loyal servants for all of your reign. And that's great advice, isn't it? But Rehoboam has no interest in listening to them. He was given two clear options. And in this immediate context, he chose the foolish option and how he would respond to the people of God. It is all going to lead to a catastrophe. Again, in the language of comparing, comparing Jeroboam to the Moses, to Moses in Exodus, one author says, as Jeroboam is Moses in the analogy in this replay of the Exodus story, so Rehoboam is Pharaoh. When he, what he does in chat, what he says and does in verses 12 to 14, he is behaving exactly as Pharaoh had behaved before him. He decides he will increase the oppression. I mean, he is dim-witted. He is hard-headed. He is just so unspiritual in the way that he responds. Dear Ralph Davis quotes and illustrates this attitude when King James I told his son, who was the prince, quote, God made you a little God to sit on this, his throne and to rule over other men. That, that's kind of the way Rehoboam is acting. Well, your problem is you just need to have increased labor. You need to be disciplined even more. He shows no mercy at all. He responds with arrogance, pride, and vulgarity to the people of God. You know, that little statement, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh, is probably a sexual innuendo that you should never have been uttered to the people of God in the way that he did it. Peter Lather may capture the essence of this, and it goes like this. If Israel feels raped by Solomon, Rehoboam plans to give them more of the same. That's the kind of leader. There is no concept of servant leadership here. And the older gentlemen, the older counselors of Solomon said, be a servant leader. And Rehoboam has, you know, Ken Sandy has not yet written his book, The Peacemaker. Remember the classic statement in there? Conflict is an opportunity to what? Glorify God. Now, Rehoboam, he has no interest in that. Now, I think that there is enough information already in the Old Testament before Kings that he should have known that what he was doing was wrong, right? You're not supposed to treat your covenant brothers in the Lord this way. He's just going to exercise political muscle. 
And in the process of this harsh response, he is miscalculating severely. I will beat you into submission. I mean, isn't that the exact way the Apostle Paul always taught? Isn't that the way Jesus always taught about leadership? Of course they didn't do that. Psalm 119.63 beautifully says, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Rehoboam flatly rejected the wonderful truth stated in Psalm 119.63. Proverbs 13.20 says this, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And now we come to the second thought. Rehoboam contributes to national division. We now see the Ahijah prophecy coming to pass. And as we come to our first question, verse 15, this is really the key to interpreting the entire passage. And that's why I put that verse at the top of the outline. Verse 15 is key to this chapter. What do we learn about God's sovereignty? This is critical for understanding this chapter. And that verse again says, so the king did not listen to the people. And then the next part makes it makes better sense to us. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah, the Shelanite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And we, we remember what those words were. If you want to look those up, just flip back to chapter 11. And look at verses 31 through 39, the prophecy that was spoken to Jeroboam because of Solomon's unfaithfulness. So verse 15 informs us of God's outworking of the prophecy of Ahijah. Rehoboam's ignorant arrogance is to be interpreted in a much larger framework of God's sovereign control of the events of the nation. Again, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah. Rehoboam's foolish and selfish response just opened the door for the prophecy to be fulfilled that was spoken to Jeroboam. I don't know if Rehoboam ever knew that there was this prophecy at this point in his life. I don't know if he learned about it later But his reign is marked not by a love for God. It's not marked by belief in God's sovereignty. It's not marked by a love for God's word. It's marked by an evil heart that does not want to be faithful to the Lord. This difficult national division, it is a sad affair. But at the same time, it is is the judgment of God coming on the nation because of Solomon's unfaithfulness and Solomon's idolatry. God is still in control of the situation, even though Israel is separating permanently as a nation. When the three days are over, Rehoboam, of course, delivers the harsh message. The king did not listen to the people. This lack of judgment and its results, this turn of events that verse 11 tells us, or verse 15, it's from the Lord. They're both true, and we'll look at the the other side of it in the next point, the next question. The text maintains the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility that is all over the pages of Scripture. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Does that mean, if I believe in the sovereignty of God, that God can do anything? 
Well, I guess it depends what you mean by anything. Can God do anything he wants to do because he is sovereign? You may say, well, of course he can. He can do that which is impossible. Again, it depends on what you mean by impossible. Philosophers have picked up on this, especially unbelieving philosophers, and they have taken the the attribute of God's omnipotence, he is all-powerful, and of course, you've heard, you've probably heard this. They, w- they will say something like this. Can God make a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it? That whole statement is logically incoherent. Can God make a square circle? And they'll smile at you. You said God can do anything. And sometimes as Christians, we have to be careful what we mean when we say God can do anything. God cannot do anything in that sense, can he? A historical note about uh, William of Ockham. He lived 800 years ago. Now, some of the things he said are interesting and maybe even helpful, like Ockham's razor. But this theologian and philosopher, he actually said that God could command us to hate ourselves and hate him, and that would still be a legitimate command of God. Because he said God can do anything. Ockham was wrong. And he taught some really dangerous things from a philosophical perspective that we may not even be aware of, something called nominalism. And so we disagree with those people that take the sovereignty of God and they twist it into something that the Bible does not actually teach. And that leads us to the next question. What do we learn about human responsibility? In verses 16 through 20. Yes, we believe God is sovereign, but we also believe that we are responsible, that humans are responsible for their actions. Rehoboam's foolish leadership leadership response caused problems that lasted for centuries in Israel. In verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what this is a sad commentary, isn't it? What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel, all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And of course, we said last time, the people of the tribe of Benjamin are mixed in there. Verse 16 is a sad verse, isn't it? The response of the people to Rehoboam is stated in idiomatic language. Without hesitation, they reject Rehoboam's authority over them. Rehoboam is still the Lord's anointed, isn't he? When the people as a whole respond to King Rehoboam, they are now rejecting his kingship and claim, claiming that no, to continue following him is a total waste of time. And it's almost like they, it's almost like God's people are saying, we have nothing to do anymore with the promises God gave to Abraham. That's how deep this is. How, how could they say that? 
But of course, Rehoboam's stubbornness is on full display, and we just continue to see it throughout this chapter. His course of folly continues to go headlong. He sends his labor secretary, right, the taskmaster, to probably create fear. He sends them to try to perhaps scare them into submission. You better believe me, or I'm going to put all of you under forced labor. It's like I, we're going to send you all to Siberia if you don't listen to me. And that mission was a disaster because they responded by stoning him to death. And then Rehoboam begins to realize, I need to escape from the city and get back to Jerusalem where it's safe, where I can make my, my next plan, my next move. The nation, the covenant nation of God is being torn apart at the seams because Solomon was unfaithful to God. That's what the prophet said in chapter 11. Rehoboam's leadership here was disastrous. He's basically saying, I will never be a servant leader. He was given that option, wasn't he, early on? He was counseled to be a servant leader. And that applies to us today, not just the people of Israel. It applies in the church and it applies in our homes, especially to those that are heads of the home. This kind of verbal abuse is never God's will, and it will never win the hearts and minds of people to support one's leadership, whether it's in the church or whether it's in a family. Again, we've, we've heard in our recent Sunday morning messages, right, a few weeks ago about the way husbands should treat a wife. Philip Ryken says, here again, we encourage the, we encounter the great mystery of God's sovereignty, going back to the, the statement in verse 15, and man's responsibility, or even in this case, God's sovereignty and man's stupidity. Rehoboam was fully responsible for the decisions he made to make things worse instead of better. You know, we hear that phrase, the devil made me do it. Some Christians turn that into, God made me do it. And that isn't true. God was not forcing Rehoboam to sin, was he? He is responsible for his actions. I cannot explain that mystery, by the way, so don't ask me. If you can teach me, teach me, but I I can't explain that. One incredibly poor decision tears down in a few days what David and Solomon labored 80 years to build. That that, that is just an obvious principle that runs true in our world. I don't know which response was more tragic, Rehoboam or the people from the north. They're both terrible. Perhaps Rehoboam because he bears unique responsibility as a leader. But the people aren't not, they're not justified in the way that they responded. I mean, nobody is doing God's will in this passage. And because of that, I mean, they are doing God's will, but they're not doing God's will, if you know what I mean. I'll let Spurgeon explain my view. He says this, quote, God had nothing to do with the sin or the folly, but in some way which we can never explain in a mysterious way in which we are to believe without hesitation, God was in it all. That summarizes what I believe. And thank you, Charles Spurgeon, for helping us with that. I'm just living with attention of both of these truths being true. God is sovereign in the affairs of this world, and yet human beings are responsible for the actions that they take. Verse 21 to 24, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe 
of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man returned to his home, for this thing is not from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. I thought that was something to compliment Rehoboam with. Uh, but apparently, he, he, okay, he's not going to go up. He's, he was ready to go up there and teach them a lesson, go to war, and, and, and take back all of the territory. The earlier verses lead some to believe that the Rehoboam response was so bad that even some of the people in Judah aligned with Jeroboam and they were not under Rehoboam's kingship there in the beginning. That that could be how bad it was. And so his plan to provoke the nation into further division was stopped because a prophet came and said, don't do it. And again, why did he listen to that? It wasn't because he had an obedient heart to the Lord. Maybe he listened out of, out of pressure from others who said, we can't fight against our brothers in this way. Maybe there was a momentary flash of common sense or wisdom that he said, what am I doing? What are we doing here? But again, we see both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, both spoken of freely uh, in this particular text. Solomon's sinful behavior paved the way for Rehoboam's foolish decision-making. Are we living in the unity provided by King Jesus? That's really one of the applications that we could uh, conclude with this evening. In the coming of Jesus into this world, we see the same tension between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility on the day of Pentecost, don't we? Remember that well-known passage? Peter is explaining what just happened and the implications, and he speaks to the people of Israel, and he says in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's a both and, isn't it? Peter states the tension in that both the divine sovereignty of God and the evil acts of unlawful men are true when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And perhaps a simple application for us to help ourselves understand now that we are in union with Jesus Christ and that we are called to live in unity with his people, Jesus Christ in his death was torn asunder in a way that far surpassed the tearing apart of the nation of Israel. It was at the cross where the difficult division in Israel only foreshadowed the deep division that Jesus Christ experienced when he bore the penalty for our sin. Christ underwent the judgment of God so that we could know the real blessing of being united with God forever. Christ came to make God's people one again, one in a way that they had never experienced anywhere in the Old Testament. Riken lists some very helpful, challenging applications for churches and families today. He talks especially about pastors and elders, that we should not lord it over the congregations, the congregations where we serve, that husbands and fathers should not be tyrants in their homes, they should not be dictators and despots. And all of those things could, apart from the grace of God, be realities in our church, in our homes, couldn't they? 
That by the grace of God, he helps leaders to be servant leaders and fathers and husbands to be servant leaders in their homes. And that is a wonderful encouragement when we struggle with those particular issues. Jesus came as the new David to unite the fractured people of God, not just in Israel, but from all over the face of the earth that would call upon his name. And the New Testament testifies to this wonderful truth in many different places and in many different ways. In John 13, we hear, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In 1 Corinthians, Paul appeals to the church that they agree together and that there be no divisions. And And then he tells them to be perfectly united in mind and thought in 110. In 2 Corinthians 13, he tells Christians to rejoice and to strive for full restoration. Encourage one another, be of one mind, and live in peace. In Ephesians, we are are told to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In Galatians, he tells us we are all one in Christ. In Philippians, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And we're not even to the one another commands that are all over the New Testament. And as we've heard for the last two weeks in the Sunday morning from 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you have unity of mind or harmony, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And God can help us in this area, all because Jesus Christ came to undo the difficult division of sin. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your plan to, before the creation of this world, Lord, to send your son into this world to die for our sins. And Lord, the division that sin has caused from Adam's fall onward is reversed in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us in spite of our sinfulness that we still commit, Lord, to experience the power of your Holy Spirit working in our lives to love you, and to love your people. Lord, may we be people who live in harmony with one another. May we genuinely love and feel compassion for one another. And Lord, we are grateful for how you help us to grow in this in our lives. Lord, prevent us from being a divisive Christian in our lifetime. We pray, Lord, that you would preserve this congregation. And Lord, we pray that you would preserve the people that attend here and that worship here. May you bless the families and keep them one in Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen.